another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, is this almost always the case from my personal mobile studio, which is my little 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. It's a chilly morning as I make my way between Arlington and Frisco, Texas today, sharing our morning drive. Uh, it is about 28 degrees, at least that's what the car tells me, and the weatherman tells me it's a little bit colder. So folks, uh, this is episode, I believe, 122 or 123, I really can't remember. I've been uh, working so much lately that I haven't really uh, been able to keep a few things straight. May have even showed up a little bit on a show or two. If uh, any of my recent shows have been a little bit uh, discombobulated, I apologize for that. Doing the best I can to keep this thing going every day of the week because I think it's important that we reach as many people as possible with some of the things that are coming our way down the road. And I've been thinking, you know, what's the next show to do? I have to do this. You might wonder how I come up with the things that I do. And a lot of times, folks, i got to be honest with you, I come up with it at the last minute. But it usually starts right about the time I finish the show and say, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. And throw the show uh, motto in there, and then I hit stop on the recorder. And right away what I'm thinking is, well, what am I going to do tomorrow? Uh, what am I going to talk about tomorrow? You know, especially, it was easy in the beginning when I'd only done a dozen shows and it just seemed like there was an endless list of topics. Uh, but, you know, and then I realized that some of the topics I've talked about, there's new information, I need to do them again, things like that. But I try to keep the show interesting and I don't want 20 shows on the same subject where you're like, Jack, you've done this so many times now, what are you going to do next? Well, as I was thinking about today, I thought, you know what, this is a good point. We're at mid-January, January 15th, 2009 today. Halfway through a month, that is the first month in a new year where a lot of people make resolutions, to back up and talk about just overall why I do this show and why we in the modern survival community do the things that we do. And look at it again from the... The, the motto of my show, and, and really for some people maybe that didn't hear some of the first shows back in June and July, explain why I do this show and why I feel the way I do about it and why so many people seem to really go from maybe I should be prepping to I definitely need to be prepping when they take the context of living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In other words, what we've tried to do is look at the threats around us, figure out how to best prepare for them, yet do it in a way that if nothing goes wrong, it doesn't harm us. We're still better off today because we prepped yesterday, even if we don't have a disaster, even if everything works out. 
And I think that that has maybe kept a lot of people out of the survivalist community because if you don't know anything about it, you look at a survivalist and the only thing you see is what the news shows you. And you see some dude hiding in a hole in the middle of Michigan playing a war game in camouflage. And again, if you're one of those people, please don't think I'm putting you down. I'm just telling you that there's a lot of people that need to be prepping, that need to be preparing, that need to be part of this movement. They look at that guy and they go, that ain't me. I don't want to be that guy. I am not going to be that guy. I never wish to be that guy. That's not my thing. Well, folks, that's not what makes that individual survivalist. That's what makes that guy part of maybe a militia or part of a, a, a group that just you know plays war games. Maybe they're a paintballer or a, you know an airsoft person. There's, those are two sports that I think a lot of the stock footage when the news talks about survivalists, the guy that they're showing you isn't even a survivalist. He couldn't even care. You know, it's some it's a couple guys playing paintball. They're like, oh, this is great stock footage, and they throw that on there because. The tactical aspects of survival are important, but they're, they're one aspect of something that's so multi-headed and so big. It's, it has so many requirements and so many things that need to be addressed that to focus on that one and make that be what it's all about is short-sighted. It's a mistake. As a prepper, it's a mistake to put all your effort there and not put your effort anywhere else. And for society, it's a mistake to look at it and go, that's all there is. So we're going to talk about some of the things today. Why we prep, what we do, what we have in place, or what we try to get in place, what we're working towards, and what those things mean, even if the shit never hits the fan. Okay? And I think for everybody that's part of this community, unless you're just raised with it, and even if you're raised with it, you probably had a point where you went away from it and you came back to it. There's a seminal moment, there's an event, or there's a series of events that over time add up and make you realize we are vulnerable. You know, the good guy doesn't always win. Alright, the cowboy doesn't always ride away at the end of the show into the sunset with the girl. Fairy tale endings are rare. Everybody doesn't live happily ever after. People die. And just because the people that you've seen die are across the country doesn't mean that it can't happen where you live. At some point, you start to realize your own mortality. And as you realize your own mortality, usually the thing that really moves people is you look around at a wife, or a husband, or a child, or grandchildren, cousins, brothers, friends, people you care about, and you realize they're just as mortal as you. And you realize that most people walk through life asleep, and they walk through life ignoring their own mortality. Because it's not pleasant to think about the things that can happen to you, and in fact, thinking about it all the time is probably a bad idea. It'll make you miserable. It might eventually make you take your own life. You can't sit around going, gee, I could die tomorrow, all the time. But there is a certain level of awareness that, hey, you know what? When I pull my head up from my computer screen, or from under the hood of the car that I'm working on, or off the assembly line that I'm working on, or whatever it is that you do every day, and I look around and pay attention, things aren't as simple as they seem, and they're not as safe as they seem, and there are, are things that could impact me. A lot of times it's a big event. It's a Hurricane Katrina. The first one that really made an impact for me, folks, and I'd been to war by this time. All right? I'd been through the first Gulf War, and you know I wasn't a frontline combat troop, but I saw a lot of the destruction that was over there. It, 
it was almost otherworldly to me. It didn't it didn't go inside. All right, for years, years later, it did. But when it was a 19, 18, 19 year old kid, I just didn't get it. But a few years later, I guess it's two, maybe a year or two later, I was stationed in Panama, and I had a good friend that was in the Air Force, and she went home to Homestead Air Force Base right after Hurricane Andrew in Florida. She brought back pictures of what Homestead and the surrounding community looked like after Hurricane Andrew. And folks, other than the flooding, it was worse than Hurricane Katrina. The damage that storm did was immeasurable. It was almost impossible to comprehend, to get it into your head. And you looked at that and you just went, those people that built those houses, those houses stood for 50 years or more. And they never worried about anything. And then one day something took it all away. And it did happen to a person. It happened to hundreds, thousands of people. Tens of thousands. Actually hundreds of thousands with that storm. And it just planted a seed in me that started to work. And it was years later with things like Hurricane Katrina and and things like, you know, Y2K, I never freaked out, but I went, eh, well, this isn't going to do it, but what if something did? How dependent have we become now on technology and computers and electrical grids and all these other things? You know, my dad had always made a statement. You know, if we just shut off all the power, half of these people would just lay down and die. And the other half would kill each other. That statement stuck with me. And I wonder, well, how true is that? And all of these things led me to start evaluating threats. That's what eventually led not only to me becoming what I consider to be a modern survivalist, with a modern survival philosophy, but the host of a show that talks about it. And I think if you're listening to this show and you're new to this whole concept, there's probably a similar path in you like that. It's probably not identical, obviously. But there's something that's made you just go, well, what if? So today I want to try to answer for you, what if? And more importantly, because this is the thing that keeps people from taking action, what if not? So let's look at some of the things that are part of a modern survival philosophy and go, what if? And what if not? Let's start with storing some food. Now most people, when they think of storing food, they think of a survivalist of a guy with a huge pile of you know, pinto beans and rice and a big stockpile of dried milk and like uh, MREs or Mountain House or something like that, freeze-dried food, canned food, huge stockpile, 10 years' worth in an underground bunker. I'll tell you what, if, you, if, uh, if life as we know it went south and uh, there was no food, that guy would live, and I appreciate what he's doing, and I get it, but that's not really for everybody. Most people don't have the financial means, and frankly, many people don't have a place for that volume of food. The other thing is, if that is what you do, and that is all you do, that food, even though it stores very long term, does have a life expectancy. Right? The best case scenario is maybe 10 years before it just really isn't worth eating anymore. Some of the stuff, I guess it could go 15, right? I mean, I actually know about a story of some guy that found a box of saltine crackers that were 20 years old, and saltine used it for publicity because they were fresh tasting anyway. And this was back in the 50s or something like that. You know, it was just wax paper and the way these crackers were made. So I guess that food could be there, but would you want to eat it? So modern survival philosophy says, well, maybe you you know use that as a basis, or maybe you put up some rice and beans, 
beans and some freeze-dried food, and you know maybe that's a month's worth that gets augmented into the other things that you store, but it's not everything, and it's not 10 years' worth. It's some piece, some portion. It's mainly designed so when you buy food like that so that it's portable, highly storable, and if you had to leave, you could take something with you to eat and or barter with. Right? So that whole thing is really a what-if only. But with modern survival food storage, the philosophy is eat what you store and store what you eat. So evaluate foodstuffs. What can I buy that will store well in my home without refrigeration or freezing that I eat anyway? And then you start to build up a surplus, and hopefully by some point you build up at least a six-month surplus of food. Where if you couldn't go to the grocery store for six months, there's enough there, maybe not to eat the same way you do now, but for everybody to get three squares a day in the household. That's it. All right. Now let's examine the what if not. What if everything doesn't explode? And you never need, there's always a chance to go to the grocery store. And nothing bad happens. What is bad about having an extra six months of food around that's highly storable that you eat anyway? Well, the answer is nothing. How much more money does it cost you? It doesn't cost you more money. It costs you less money. Long term, it costs you less money. Looking at this as a business person, what I see when I look at this is not the ability to not spend money, but to defer an expense, what's called a capital deferral in the financial industry. And what I mean by that is the price of food increases over time. It increases as fast as anything else in the economy. I did a show earlier this year that showed you that a portfolio of food, even when the stock market hadn't crashed, had outperformed the stock market 9 to 1 in early 2008. 9 to 1, before the crash. So the food is a good investment financially. But here's the deal with that. That only goes so far because if it's June and I have six months of food stored, by December I'm turning over about half of it because you're not eating all of it. You turn over six months over a year. So I have to replace those three months during that period of time so I'm still spending the money. But what I'm doing is I'm spending the money today and deferring the increased expense by 90 days to 6 months. And if I build up enough of a storage uh, over a year, I'm doing a one-year deferral, which means that 12% rise in increase, I don't pay for today, I pay for tomorrow. It's like a reverse retirement account. And the math works out, and you're just going to have to trust me that the math works out if it doesn't make sense to you, because there are corporations that pay billions of dollars for consulting and technology that allows them to defer capital expenditures. All right? So it works. The system works. And the reality is it will never cost you more anyway. It will always end up costing you less, and you have insurance. And I want you to start looking at everything we're going to talk about today, like an insurance policy, but not a whole life crappy you know, investment. You're 30. You just bought a house. You got a 30-year mortgage on it. You got a wife. You got a couple kids. You got a good income. You look ahead and say, you know, by the time I'm 60, I'm going to have enough money saved up. The kids are going to be on their own. Um, 
I just need to make sure that something happens between me now and the time I'm 60 that they can pay off the house, they can pay off any debt that we have, the kids will still be able to go to school, the wife won't be on the street, she won't be working 10 jobs. So you buy a big, giant life insurance policy with 30-year term. And it's very cheap. It's very inexpensive for that life insurance. And a lot of life insurance salespeople, usually when they're trying to push a whole life policy down a guy's throat, if the guy says, well, if I die, they say, Frank, it's not if you die, it's when you die. Everybody dies. So sooner or later you're going to die, and sooner or later somebody's going to get this money. Right? With term, it doesn't work that way. At you know, 60 years of age, your term policy expires. You've spent a lot less money. Hopefully you've saved the difference. And your policy goes away. Now, the people that say prepping doesn't make sense would be the same person that would look at Frank and say, Frank wasted 30 years' worth of insurance. That All that money could have been saved. And 30-year term for a 30-year-old guy might run less than $200 a month for a quarter million to a half a million dollars worth of coverage, somewhere in that range. All right? So over 30 years, what are we talking? Six grand? Did this guy put into it? You know what that six grand bought him? Every night he put his head down on his pillow, thought about his kids and his wife. Every time he went to the doctor and he said, Frank, we something doesn't look right here. And it turned out to be nothing. Every time somebody cut in front of him with a car and he hit the brakes and he thought, oh man, this might be it. In all those times, good and bad, he realized, you know what, if something happens to me, they're going to be okay. And hopefully they insured the, the, the you know, Frankette, the wife as well. And hopefully they put a little bit on the kids so at least if something happened, it could bury them. And that's part of life insurance, I mean, part of survival planning too, is basic life insurance. But just take that analogy and apply it to everything we talk about today. That food in your closet, even if it's not needed, when you're hearing, hey, everybody at the plant might be getting laid off. One less thing to worry about for the next six months. Alright? One less thing to worry about. And that puts less stress on your heart. And that makes you live longer, healthier, and happier, and a better life. Times are tough or not. And you can apply that to anything. Let's look at one of the things that survivalist community is really into, a lot of us, firearms, guns. Good handgun. If your state allows it, a concealed carry permit. Everybody in the family should know how to use a gun, how to load it, how to unload it, how to be safe with it. should have the means to protect your home and your family and the things that you hold precious and dear. What if nobody ever breaks in? I sleep better. I sleep better knowing that in about three seconds time from hearing a sound to waking up in a stone cold dead of night that my 45 would be in my hand. And that I am smart enough and I've taken enough training to know how to use that weapon effectively and make sure I don't shoot somebody else there that lives with me. I sleep a lot better because of that. The fact that society could break down and I have enough weaponry to defend my home, the way that people in Andrews Air Force Base in Homestead, Florida, or Homestead Air Force Base did, Homestead, Florida, after Hurricane Andrew, do you know that people went up on the roofs of what was left of their houses with their hunting rifles and said, till the National Guard gets here, you're not looting my house. 
You know, Homestead and Andrew was the complete opposite of New Orleans and Katrina. Instead of society breaking down in Homestead, the attitude of the people that lived there held it together. The, the, the vermin that would go out and steal looked up on the roof and they saw Frank with his 3006 and they went, Frank, shoot me if I go to his house. You know what? If I go to his neighbor's house, even though his neighbor left, Frank's still going to shoot me. If he can see me and I'm going in a place I don't belong, he's probably going to shoot me and the looting just didn't happen. At least in a lot of areas it didn't happen. So when it comes to arming yourself, what if nothing goes wrong? Well, good, you sleep better at night. And you know that if something goes wrong, you're insured. And friends, let me tell you something else. Guns are a good investment. The value of guns over time has consistently gone up. Uh, I get the NRA publication, American Rifleman, and a lot of times they have something from 50 years, 75, and 100 years ago. Recently, they had a uh, thing from like 75 years ago, and they were selling, what it was, the civilian marksmanship was selling barreled actions from 1917 and This is a .30-06, bolt, trigger, assembly, barrel, the whole thing, right? Basically, all you do is drop this thing in a stock, and they were being sold for guys who wanted to customize them and things like that. Barreled actions for $19. <laughs> If you could get your, and these were like brand new, never issued, because the war, World War One, had ended, and uh, these were these were like they had all been built, ready to go, ready to put in stocks and send overseas, and then the war ended. So well, what do we do with them now? We have a surplus. Nineteen dollars. There isn't anybody that's a collector. They probably wouldn't pay a hundred times that today for one of those in that kind of condition. So guns go up over time, and it doesn't have to be collectibles. You know, you look at what it costs you to buy a good Smith and Wesson 357 Magnum revolver, 1965, and look what it costs you to do it today. And even though you can buy a used one for less, it still costs you more than a new one did in '65. So they're a good investment. If you enjoy shooting, I don't have to say anymore. If you don't, go take some classes. Go out and get some training. Do some ski shooting. Get a coach. Get an instructor. I have never met anybody that's actually given the shooting sports a real shot that didn't enjoy it. And it, the thing about shooting is it centers you. It brings you a level of focus that very few other activities do. So, again, something goes wrong, it's there. Something doesn't go wrong, it brings value added life, value to your life and a peace of mind that knowing you have the ability to defend yourself. Because it's the same that I think is true. You know, cops are only minutes away. What seconds count? You dial nine one one. The best law enforcement in the in the United States is five minutes away from you. Five minutes is enough time for everybody in your house to end up dead, or worse. It doesn't really help that five minutes from now a guy may or may not get caught. We had a guy down in Houston on phone with nine one one for ten minutes while his neighbor's house was being robbed. Ten minutes later, no cops are there. This guy says, "You know what? I'm tired of waiting on you guys." Puts the phone down, leaves it off the hook so you hear it. Goes outside with a shotgun. Boom, boom. Both robbers dead. They made a big scene about it. Oh, this is vigilantism, blah blah blah. You know what? Under the laws of the state of Texas, anyway. This guy never faced prosecution. They should give him a medal. Don't rob people's houses. 
So that's one way to look at one aspect of prepping. Look at something totally different, gardening. Gardening comes in as part of preparations because if you store food, sooner or later, no matter how much food you store, if the supply side ends or dramatically declines, or the expense to acquire it dramatically increases, eventually you run out of what you've laid up. And you've got to do something to compensate for that now that that supply has diminished. And let's add to gardening things that are more permaculture oriented. This is things like planting fruit trees, planting nut trees, planting vines and bushes and shrubs. They come back every year and produce over and over and over again. Ever bearing crops that bear for years and years and seasons and seasons. And then things that are more like kind of a hybrid between a garden, but they come back every year like asparagus and strawberries. When you start doing all of these things, you take control of some portion of the supply side of your food. And it doesn't matter if it's 10%, 50%, or 60%, or 70%, or there are some families that provide nearly 100% of their supply side for food through the summer and fall when production is heavy. But it could be a huge amount, it could be a small amount, but what you've done is you've taken some portion of your dependence on several systems... And you've taken away from that and you've given yourself independence from them. What systems are you dependent on when it comes to buying fruit from a grocery store? You're dependent on the financial system that keeps you working and seeking income. And trading your time for money. Right? You're dependent on the distribution system that gets the food from the field through a warehouse to the store. Alright. You're dependent on the agricultural system that grows the food, and you're dependent on the labor system, often illegal labor, that's used in the agricultural system to harvest, plant, and maintain, and transport the food. All of those systems. And if you make 50% independency from them, you have a lot more freedom, a lot more time, and a lot less lost money, even if nothing goes wrong. Now, if we have a major catastrophe, if society does break down, and I'm not going to talk about the reasons that could happen today, you just tune into other episodes, we talk about the threats all the time, if it gets really, really bad, you still eat. But if nothing goes wrong, you increase the value of your property, you increase the power of your mind by solving the problems that will come with gardening, you eat better, you will be healthier, and you'll spend less money. You don't lose. And that's the thing about all of these things. When they're done rationally, when they're done level-headed, when you don't run over and join the tinfoil hat brigade and start freaking out, and it's not that some of those guys that I call tinfoil hatters are wrong about everything. It's the way they respond to them that's the bigger issue. Could there be a global governmental threat? You bet there could. Sure there could. But if you go running around freaking out about it, screaming and yelling and hollering and acting like a fool, buying a $100,000 underground shelter with money you don't have, waiting for the apocalypse, it's not very practical, and if nothing goes wrong... Eventually it fizzles out for you and you go back to living blind. But when you take these practical steps, 
slowly increasing your own independence and self-sufficiency over time, it becomes a new lifestyle. It's like the difference between changing your eating habits and going on a diet. You go on a diet, you get radical, you get crazy, it works at first, you lose some weight, you look better, you feel better, but you're not living like a normal human being anymore, and eventually you either are miserable and skinny, or you give up and you're fat. When you realize, hey, you know what, I can't eat Twinkies and Ho-Hos, but I can have a normal dinner like everybody else does. I have to have a point where I go, not really full yet, but I can stop eating, but I don't have to deny myself regular normal food. I can pick up a freaking bottle of beer and have a bottle of beer or a glass of wine. It's not going to kill me. And you don't go radical. You just change little things over time. You live a healthier, happier life long term. And maybe you never get down to that you know, front page model cover body you're looking for. But it works. And it works for you. And that's what's important. That's what modern survival philosophy is. That's what makes it different than I guess what you would call the media bias version of survival philosophy. Because modern survival philosophy always comes down to what works for you. I might want to cultivate a thousand square feet for my garden. You might want to cultivate a hundred. I might want twenty fruit and nut producing trees on my property. You might want two. We're both survivalists. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're both doing what works for us in our lifestyle and with the means that we have available to ourselves. What about storing water? You know, storing water, putting in some rain catch systems so you have additional reserve water, maybe having an above-ground pool. That's one of the things I've done. Um, All of those things are about as risk-free as they can get. You cut your water bill if you're doing rain catch. You can use that water for watering plants and things like that. And sooner or later, it's almost inevitable that one day the water won't work. It just happened to me while I was on vacation at my place up in Arkansas. Walked in, turned the water on, drip, drip, drop, no more water. We used our rain catch to flush our toilets. We used our stored water for drinking and bathing for three days. Uh, everything was closed. It was during the holidays. Once the store opened, we went and got a part and 140 bucks, and the water was back on. And that's my well, and that's more self-sufficient than the grid, right? And I was without water. Sooner or later, it'll get cold enough that pipes will freeze. Sooner or later, there'll be some kind of contaminant scare wheel will tell you don't drink the water. Sooner or later, something will happen. How much does it cost to store water? You can get old jugs for free. Folks, you can buy, this is one of the best sources of water I know, Walmart, 68 cents a jug. Why is that a good deal? I don't believe you can buy the jugs for 60 cents anywhere, and these ones come pre-filled. You know, you can go out and buy 12, 20 gallons of water, something like that, put it in a closet somewhere. Uh, having additional water is a great idea. Again, rain catch is something I do. Eventually, you might want to get as independent as having a well. But again, how does this hurt you? It doesn't hurt you. If something goes wrong, it's there. There's the peace of mind in knowing it. And let me tell you something, folks. You want to make your very comfortable home miserable, go a week without being able to flush your toilets. Right? And I mean, the cost of water... It's so minuscule, it's so low, to have some on, you know, 50, 60 gallons in total saved up, which is probably not enough. You want to figure out how to store a couple hundred gallons, and it's not that hard. If you, again, some rain barrels will go a long way. Um, it doesn't make any sense not to. If I have to convince you of that one, you probably aren't listening to this show anymore anyway. You know, turning almost 100 degrees from where we're at right now, 
What about things like uh, precious metals, having some gold, silver, and things like that around? Now, this has a, a multi-head to it, uh, the, the, the silver coin, gold coin thing. There's a lot of people out there pushing these high numismatic value things. In other words, it's a gold coin. It's worth $400 in gold content. It's got to, you know, that's what it's worth. It's worth 400 bucks. But it's some rare special coin with some collector grade to it. So they're selling it for $1,200. And right now it is worth $1,200, sort of, because somebody will pay $1,200 for it. To me, that's not the investment that you should be making from a survival philosophy or even just an investing philosophy. Now, if you're a newsmaticist, somebody that collects coins and you like that and you have the funding, go, go nuts. Do whatever you want. I'm not going to put anybody's hobby down. But see it as a hobby. Investing is about the intrinsic underlining value of the metal. And what I mean by that is if I had a 1968 quarter, which is copper, nickel, clad quarter, like the ones you have today from 2009, and I have a 1935 quarter, which is 90% silver, they both say they're worth a quarter of a dollar. But the quarter from 1935 will buy me more than a gallon of gas right now because of the value of the silver in it. And in the survivalist community, we understand that our money, our U.S. dollar, is based on a fiat currency at this point. There's nothing backing our money other than the good faith and productivity of the American government and the American people. And our good faith and our productivity keeps going down. And the total number of dollars keeps going up, so the value of our dollar is going down. That's inflation, folks. That's why it costs you more to buy a loaf of bread today than it did in 2001. That's where that comes from. That's the only source of that. That's the only reason that that happens. Inflation is not normal. It's abnormal. If we were on a standard that was based on a real commodity, there would be inflation and there would be deflation, but it would be very, very low. If you look at the inflation and cost of goods and services and wages and every other economic indicator in the United States... Prior to us going off the gold standard under FDR, the line is almost flat for over a 100 years. And then from that point on, it just goes up like a mountain. That's where it comes from. And it's not an economic show, so I can't go deeply into it. Just know that if you put $10,000 in a strong box in your house that won't burn in a fire, and you had $10,000 today, 10 years from now, your $10,000 is not worth $10,000 anymore. It's probably worth about... $7,000 today based on the way things are going. You're, it's almost like somebody comes in and takes away $3,000. Now, there'll still be $10,000 face value there, but what you can do with it, what its power will have declined by 20-30% in 10 years. If you had $10,000 worth of silver coin, it might be worth a little bit less, it might be worth a little bit more, it might be worth a lot more. But there's an intrinsic underlying value that doesn't go away. So, if society breaks down, if our inflation runs away and you have a few thousand dollars in silver, it probably just became worth a few hundred thousand dollars of silver, even though you would never change it for money. Because the money at that point is worthless. It can be used for barter. 
with other people that understand the value of silver, that have things that you don't, that are prepared in ways that you didn't, because nobody can prepare for anything. So its primary motivation for survivalists is generally a barter economy that shows up after the decline of a currency into oblivion. And we do that because history has shown us that every fiat currency that's ever existed, every currency, just like the U.S. dollar, just like most world currencies today, that just runs on the ability of the government to issue it, sooner or later has collapsed into nothingness. Sooner or later has become worthless and has been devalued. It's happened over and over and over again. So, history shows us, you know, a strong indicator of future expectations. So we prepare for it. What if nothing happens? Well, then you end up with a few thousand dollars that might become worth a few tens of thousands of dollars in highly collectible silver coins that are no longer in circulation that you give to your son or grandson when you're ready to die. And you have the insurance policy along the way of knowing you have some level of wealth that's more stable than everything else. Because we're not talking about putting your life savings into gold and silver here. We're talking about picking up $100 worth of coins here and $100 worth of coins there until you have a few thousand dollars worth of silver and or gold. The reason I'm a big fan of silver is it breaks down into smaller increments a lot better. So if I did have to use it for barter, it's a lot easier to come up and, and give somebody what amounts to, you know, a dollar's worth of silver, to put it in perspective, than a dollar's worth of gold. I mean, what's a dollar's worth of gold? I take my pocket knife out and I scrape out, you know, a, a tiny flake of gold and I give that to you. Is that, that's not going to work. How are we going to measure that, right? But I can give you a silver dime. Right. And there's an agreed upon value in society at that point. So from the barter aspect, that's why I prefer silver. Gold is still a great investment. I do own some gold. I suggest you do too. But I also suggest it's pretty easy to pick up what they call junk silver, uh, which is you're basically buying the bullion value of pre-64 U.S. coin. Uh, dimes, dimes, quarters, 50 cent pieces, half dollars, and, and silver dollars. That stuff is, is, is great, highly portable, highly valuable. And uh, it doesn't make sense to me to not have at least a few hundred dollars worth. And I'm not saying a few hundred dollars face value, but a few hundred dollars worth in the silver content. And uh, a couple thousand is probably not a bad idea. Over time, again, it's not something you have to run out and do tomorrow. So, again, it's another one of those things you have to look at and go, well, what's my down? What's the downside to having a few thousand dollars worth of silver? I mean, is that a bad thing? Can I not? You know, it's not like... Um, I don't know, it's not like buying some kind of uh, a thing that, like, if you went out and tried to sell it, you're going to get half of what you paid for it. There's a market value to silver that you can go cash it in for at any time. And if, you know, currency doesn't erode, it's since you're buying silver coin, if you had $100 worth of silver coin, the least it would ever be worth in our economy is $100. So there's a floor to it, no matter what. So it's a pretty safe investment. And all of these things, you know, things like having a bug-out bag. Now, a bug-out bag is, you know, a pack that's designed to support you for 72 hours. A lot of people try to make their packs designed to support them for four days, give them that one extra day of security. Now... When people get into survivalism at first, they think of this bug-out pack as this highly tactical Rambo kit designed for you to run off and live in the woods. A bug-out bag is designed to get from one place to another place safely and securely. And I can't, uh, maybe I need to do another show on bug-out bags and the stuff you put in a bug-out bag. 
But it's things that help you navigate. It's things that help you survive. Food, water. All the things that you would need to remain as comfortable as possible on the move. Or in some sort of shelter for three to four days. And be as self-sufficient as possible during that time. Now, nothing ever goes wrong. You know what? The stuff in there is probably good for your camping trips. Sooner or later, you know what, somebody's going to skin a knee and you say, you know what, i got a first aid kit in, in the trunk of my car. You might not tell the people around you because they'll look at you weird in my bug out bag, right? But it's there. It's available. It'll support you. It'll give you what you need when the time comes. I don't know anybody that keeps a well-stocked bug out bag that's never opened it up and pulled something out of it and used it. So it's always there. They're not that expensive to put together. And boy, if something goes wrong and you need to get out of Dodge, it's a hell of an insurance policy. And it's something you should have for every member of the family. Kids, you might have a lot less involved, but they can carry some stuff. At least they can carry, you know, the food and water that they need, maybe some juice boxes and stuff like that, depending on your hate of your kids. And maybe a little bit of stuff you can't fit in your own, and you keep their pack nice and light. But everybody's ready to go, and everybody knows if and anything ever occurs. Well, we don't even have ten minutes. We've got ten seconds. Grab your kit. Let's go. You're not leaving naked. Very low risk, very high return insurance policy. And everything that we do in this community is based on that type of philosophy. So there's a, there's a ton more things that I could talk about that fit into this. All I want to encourage you to do is every time you're thinking about, do I make this prep if you're already an active prepper? Or if you're new to this whole scene, you're thinking, do I really need to get into this? Realize that it's not about getting into this like, okay, now we're going to go out to a special store and start buying special survival stuff. It's about just changing your lifestyle a little bit, changing the way you think a little bit, and understanding that the biggest asset you will ever have is your mind and your ability. Let me finish with one last thing that I think every survivalist should be doing. Developing new skills, be it gardening, be it carpentry, all right, being in how to shoot, being in how to fix things, repair things, auto mechanics. You should be teaching yourself a new skill. And you don't have to be an expert at it, but the basics of a new skill, you should be able to learn one a month. If you do that for a lifetime, you become that jack of all trades. And you might be, instead of a master of none, a master of one or two. But being that jack of all trades is a good thing. It makes you highly valuable if times get tough or even if they don't. You're the neighbor that Bob can rely on when he can't figure out how to get his lawnmower to start. And that goes a long way in your social life if nothing goes wrong. And you're the guy that can get his car running when the life of his family depends on it. Or you're at least the guy that knows there's no hope for this car anymore. We have to take another avenue to get ourselves out of this situation. That all comes from building the knowledge base. And if I have to convince you that there's no risk in becoming more intelligent... I really don't think you'd be listening to me in the first place or listening to anybody that was talking about things like this. So take that away from today, if nothing else. Even if you've already done all the other things that we talked about today, what skill can you teach yourself? Let me ask you, now that it's January 15th, if you've set any goals for yourself this year, if you did it the way I talked about back in December and you divided it up and said, okay, I'm going to have a goal for the year, and that means by the end of January I have to have X done, 
done? Have you gotten half of X done yet for that one goal? If not, reevaluate it. Get back online. Start working to get those things done because they are important. And as we've talked about today, there's little downside to most of the things that we do as long as you keep a level head and a logical process in place to ensure that you're doing the things that make the best sense for your individual lifestyle, your individual needs, and your individual risk tolerance. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.